Hey everyone, my name's Brayden, and you're listening to A Questioning Faith, a podcast crafted to allow us all to ask hard questions about what we believe and how our beliefs shape us. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Remember to like and subscribe to all of our social media channels. The links will be in the show notes. Today we begin a series of conversations with John Thomas Fuller. He's the author of Enter Into My Rest, The Mysteries of Living and Dying Revealed. Uh, The conversation started before we hit record, so we'll be jumping in right away. Uh, It's going to be a fun ride. Enjoy the episode and be sure to look at John's book on his website, www.enterintomyrest.com. That's www.enterintomyrest.com. We are going. We are recording to the cloud. So here's how here's how the whole 42 thing began. But let me give it a little bit of a preface. I started writing this book in 2007. Uh, my clo- my store had just closed. Um, I had been in the back of my mind for at that time, well over 20 years, remembering that Jesus told me in 1986 to write a book, and I had you know no context about what I should be saying it's like oh god should I be preaching it you know people that doesn't go over very well Mm -hmm. the other thing was uh the lord had to mature me so what I started with as my structure was the book of revelation One of the things that I have personally done with the book of Revelation is to apply it subjectively rather than objectively. Part of that is the very first book I ever read having to do with anything about Christianity was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. You may be familiar with it, although you both are pretty young. (laughs) That was... That was uh, introduced to me in the middle 70s. And everything was objectified. Everything was, you know, dated. And everything was a prediction about what was going to happen. And if you're familiar with the book, none of it happened. Mm-hmm. So I was, I'm very cautious about interpreting Revelation from an objective standpoint. Because then what you get is a bunch of people pointing their fingers at everybody else because they're all wrong and we're right. And that didn't fit for me. Uh, So that was the initial structure of the book. And it did not work. Okay. And I, there is this event that happened. I was working with an agent in Chicago at the time and he had submitted the manuscript to numerous publishers and they had interest, but it just wasn't what they wanted to do. And so I was proofreading it one night and it was a dead read. I mean, literally and truly it was lifeless. And I literally threw the manuscript on the ground. This is my, the, the nature of my relationship with Jesus. And I said, and I quote, if you want me to write this book, you're gonna have to give me a silver pen. 
Well, he came to me that night with the response. Um, well, I stood up. I always stand up in the Lord's presence. And I looked him in the eyes, okay? And I said, the book sucks. <laughs> and he looked me in the eyes and he said, you're not white yet. And I was, my literal response in my mind was, oh, poop. Because I knew, I knew what he was telling me was that I had some inner work to do. And everybody knows inner work is the hardest work there is. Yeah. To, it is hard work. That's and why the majority of us don't do anything about it. <laughs> Just well, live with it. That's probably why they don't. It is hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard to change. I, I struggle with change. And uh, so it would take then... 11 more years for the becoming white, you know, uh, and if you want to use the classic metaphor being washed in the blood. And I was literally put through the ringer because when I had the Lyme disease, it was killing me quite literally. And what it gave me, and I think this is probably the single most important takeaway from the entire process, was it gave me compassion for human suffering because we all suffer in some way. So while I was recovering from this illness or attempting to, I was doing a lot of research and all of a sudden information just kind of floated into me. I call it the angels and the ancestors, but information was coming from me that was not originating inside either my heart or my mind. And one of those things was the length of Solomon's temple is exactly the polar radius of the earth divided by 42,000. Well, that's not only a rather bizarre number, but it's, a, it's an integer number. And consequently, that makes my ears, you know, perk up because it's, it's saying, 42,000. What does that mean? Because I had no awareness that there was this entire mystical tradition in Judaism around the number 42. I had no idea. I had been taught in church that if you count the generations in Matthew's gospel between um, Abraham and Jesus, it's exactly 42, even though one of those isn't a real generation at all. And then it's hidden in other ways in Numbers 33. Is that right, Eric? Numbers 33? I think so. It's the 42-stage journey. And one of the things I have found out as I have gotten into the research about these little kind of details is when in the Old Testament it said God told Moses to write or God's hand was on David who wrote that tells me that this is information that's not actually coming from, let's say, a deductive process, but it is an inspired word coming through. So I paid a little closer attention. And then I read Paul, and Paul said that 42-stage journey is essentially a template for our cultivation, lest we fall into the errors that the Israelites did in the desert. 
And I thought, okay, this isn't just casual or random. Then I, um, Eric and I have spent a lot of time analyzing the text of both the New Testament and the Old Testament for chiasms because they are a literary structure that's used throughout the Bible. And all of a sudden, if you break down the numbers in Revelation, John uses 42 in ways over and over and over. And it is a perfect chiastic structure. And it focuses on then, you know, the vision of heaven. That tells me, you know, there's a good reason why we should pay attention to this. And that then became the structure of the book because ultimately we think that people need to become aware of God's presence in their lives. And that is a, it is an external perhaps tool of perhaps um, bringing the awareness to them. So John, you brought a tremendous amount of information forward in uh, in that introduction, in ten minutes. Yeah, in ten minutes. <laughs> uh, so I want to I want to add something, if it's okay with you. I want to add some definition and some maybe some clarity for Please, because that's your that's your specialty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and ideas. What uh, what John mentioned, Numbers thirty three, and I think that's what it is. In Numbers thirty three, we are given every stop in the forty two stage journey of the Israelites travel from uh, their escape from Pharaoh to the promised land. Mm -hmm. uh, so this 42 stage journey is not something that is just a mystical made up thing. It actually appears in, uh, in numbers. And it has, so the incredible epiphany that John had is that it isn't just in numbers it's woven throughout the entire fabric of our holy scriptures. And it's a theme, it's a trope that many authors used that uh, to remind people. And so their audience understood this theme or this trope. So when Paul uses the 42 stage journey, he knows that his audience is aware of it. It's in the air, it's in the water, it's, it's, it's what the audience breathed and swam in that we are just now reawakening to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's so much of that in, in the Bible because it comes from a culture that's oh, at least 3,500 years old that, mm -hmm. and we've lost so much of that. Well, so, so much of the oral tradition as it gets passed down, like the, the meanings behind it, you right. know, the oral tradition doesn't always follow as well when it turns into the, the written stories and history of, of where we're coming from. And so, yeah, that idea of, of Paul just writing about the 42 stage journey, Paul didn't need to explain it to his audience. Yeah. And then you lose, you know, add to that, you lose what you lose in translation from the Hebrew or the Greek to English. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and some of the words that Paul used, they are only found in Paul's <laughs> letters. So, uh, so I wanted to uh, also bring in the voice of Mrs. Shanai Mendelowitz, who is a teacher at uh, EAIS Yakov. How do you pronounce that, John? 
Ice Yaakov Seminary? It literally means House of Jacob. Oh, okay. We would, we would in the Sephardic Hebrew say Beit Yaakov. Okay. So uh, she teaches at a seminary in Montreal, and she wrote this about the 42-stage journey. If a journey is significant, then each stage is a notable accomplishment on its own for the end of a process is the cum cumulative result of many progressive efforts. Each arrival becomes a new point of departure for the next level, similar to the motion of ascending a ladder step-by-step. Step. This is how we climb grow, become, and achieve. In fact, one of the reasons that we don't interrupt the lengthy passage of the journeys when reading Torah is that the 42 stages are interrelated and sequenced. This definition, this emphasis on the process rather than the end result is echoed by Gemara. If you toiled, you can be certain you'll find success. We might question if this is always the case. Can we guarantee that every effort yields results? Do not the best intentions and the most determined exertions sometimes fail? Well, perhaps we need to alter our definition of success. In the spiritual realm, explains Rabbi Miller, or Rav Miller, we value the effort itself. The effort is the achievement. Toil is the equivalent to success. For this is the purpose of our creation, to work to serve our creator. However, we can only travel our assigned route and respond to its challenges. What will we accomplish along the way? Where will we land? When will we disembark? The outcomes are, uh, <laughs> I don't know Hebrew. I'm pretty good with Greek, but not Hebrew. Hakadosh Baruch whose domain. I think that is uh, 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 God blessed be his name's domain. Beautiful. Pretty close, John. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> so, uh, coming from that perspective, uh, I wanted to. Um, that's how I see this book. Having gone through the book several times now, that's what I see. Is and now I think I understand what you were doing, John, when you crafted this. It's a 42-stage journey in which you say it's not necessarily meant to be read chronologically, um, but it is a uh, uh, it is inter interwoven, and um, each level is is necessary, but it's not it's not linear. You know, I really am glad that you actually picked up on it because the specific stories that I chose were about building on earlier experience. The, the order in which it's read is relatively irrelevant, but the, and a lot of people have a hard time getting through the first part of the book. Some people have a hard time getting through the second part of the book, but the third part of the book is really almost about reaping the fruit because it was incumbent upon me having experienced all of that, or I suppose it depended upon all of that that brought me to the place. And one thing I really liked about the what you wrote about the woman, I really liked the metaphor of climbing a ladder because um, that is rather what it is like. 
that is what the experience in the temple is about. You're actually climbing every step of the way. And when you see that, so if you have a picture of the temple uh, from when it was, well, I don't know first time, we don't have pictures of first temple, but the second temple, Herod's temple, uh, there's this massive, massive stone stairs. Um, I don't know how many stairs, a hundred stairs, maybe more. Uh, yeah, so it's a figurative and literal journey to, to go from the ground to the temple, to the top of the temple. I think it's especially interesting, the, the thought of it not needing to be a linear uh, journey. You know, it doesn't need to, to follow chronological order. Um, Eric and I were sort of talking about this a little bit earlier, and a comparison in, in, that I like for my life, it's easy. It, it, I can sit down and find some of those stages that I maybe have started into um, or come through at different times. But the comparison that works for me is like in a video game or any other like role playing game scenario where there are multiple missions or things to accomplish or whatever, and you can do them in any order. But through each of those things, you gain experience points, skill points, abilities, different things like that, that you might only get a certain ability or a certain experience from a particular mission or stage or you know, whatever that might be. And so each, each time you play through it, you could have a completely different outcome. And so I think that ends up being the metaphor for why each of us experiences God so differently. And Braden, I appreciate many things about what you said. I appreciate the analogy tremendously because that's exactly right. But I also appreciate that you recognize that you are on that journey, whether you're on step number 21, 84, whatever. Mm -hmm. The point being, we are all on the journey. And I have thought about this a lot. And Eric, you might, I think, appreciate this just as much as everyone else. I didn't have to write those particular stories. And I've tried to convey to people that number one, we actually all experience God in our lives, beginning and end of statement. We may not recognize it. And what for me right now in my life at my age is the most perfect expression of God's presence is when a person says something kind to another human being or when a person does something kind. So for example, I, at my job, I work at a desk and I'm in contact with the public a lot. And one of the people I spoke to told me that when this COVID thing happened, because he knew it would be impacting certain people in his circle of business relationships, he actually just basically gave a grant of money to people without them having requested it or anything because he knew that their business was hurting. And I literally almost broke down and cried because that is a much better story in my mind than having to gone up to the fifth heaven and seen wonders and, you know, whatever. People miss those stories. And I don't think the book would have captured as many eyes, perhaps, but maybe I'm wrong. And I would hope I were wrong, in fact. So kind of can, going back, John, what you said of bringing that um, 
not having to go up, you know, to heaven to experience all this, but when, when, when people say bringing heaven down to earth, it's bringing heaven down to earth is loving people, being kind to people. Um, is that kind of what you were looking my, at? When I first began on my journey, what I called my hands were the hands of God. End of statement. And these hands had to be used to the best of this body's ability to express that reality. Um, the, in one of my Bible study classes, our feet are the feet of God walking on the earth. And it takes a great deal of courage to be that person, to be out there in the line of fire, to be loving when you know your heart's going to be broken, because that's just how it is. I'd like to explore that awareness of God concept a little bit more through the eyes of Cisternian monk, Father Thomas Keating. And uh, Father Keating is credited with being the person, one of the primary developers of centering prayer, uh, which is a form of contemplative prayer that uh, began with, uh, Keating was a student of Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton uh, really developed it and Keating carried forward after uh, Merton passed away. Um, but he's also considered one of the great spiritual mentors. And uh, for anybody who's listening, uh, YouTube him and listen to what he has to teach. Uh, but he offers us this perspective uh, on the spiritual journey. And he says the spiritual journey begins when we have that awareness that John was talking about. Uh, when we realize that we don't just believe that God is possible we have an awareness and we have got to do something about the invitation we are being given. It's realizing that we are being invited into something much bigger, mysterious, and grander than we could ever possibly imagine. Uh, it's a spiritual sixth sense somehow that gets triggered. Um, this is manifest in our desire to be in relationship with God. And we realize this desire comes from outside of ourselves. Keating says, this desire itself is a gift from God. Uh, in the Methodist perspective of this, that's, that's, that's Cisternian uh, uh, theology. The Methodist theology is provenient grace, the grace which comes before. Before we have any idea that God is there, the very desire to know God comes from God. Um, it's, it's that ache in our bones that from from the beginning of our life we we are searching for something you know as kids it might be that you're looking for your favorite toy you're looking for your next snack or whatever that might be but the the older we get and the, the further we get into life and once those basic survival needs are met we do we tend to start looking for things that are bigger than us and i think i i really think that's just it's programmed into us I agree, 100%. So, John, uh, going back to your book, um, now this is not linear, but um, your, your story does begin at the beginning, uh, childhood, um, and uh, a definition of who you are, uh, and then the death in Argyle, uh, an awakening, which... The reason that I brought up Keating is because in chapter three, your awakening moment, when you have this 
true epiphany. Uh, you don't know what it is. Uh, you don't know, I, I sense that you don't really know what's going on, just you have an awareness that this is something that you can do. Uh, and I was hoping you would describe that something you can do moment uh, when you shoot out from your forehead. For our listeners who haven't read the book, what happened was I was in a touring coach with one of my classes in Scotland and we had a head-on collision with a small white Toyota with four young people in there ditching school. And I had chosen the front seat so that I could see the countryside because this was like a free guided tour of Loch Ness and um, would eventually become Argyleshire. And I wanted to get the whole picture. Well, I witnessed the young driver's death. And at the time of impact, I literally, my consciousness literally shot out of my body. So I was shot out into the adjacent field and I was aware essentially of three levels of consciousness simultaneously. The one being the I whom I identify as myself, then the other being the awareness that there is a body in the vehicle that I was shot from. And then the third awareness was I actually had a memory of the last time I had done that as a child. And I had had, or I should say, I have had other memories of having been in that otherworldly place as a child, but I didn't know in my adult mind what that place was. And to a degree, you're absolutely right, Eric, when you say I didn't know what was going on because it is the classic example of a near-death experience. You literally have no bearings a lot of the time and a lot of people experience that and don't know what is going on. And I had read a lot about near-death experiences, you know, around that time period because they really uh, started occurring with greater frequency for whatever reason. I can't imagine what the cosmic timing might be of that. But I had some familiarity with the process, but because I didn't have anyone meet me, I didn't have the throne of glory experience, or I didn't have the white light body come to get me. So I really didn't know what I had experienced, except that I had experienced it. The time frame in that space was slowed down and we struggled with how to actually express that in both the written book and the audible because if I had scripted it for a movie, everything would have been slowed to about 1% of the passage of time we experience in the physical plane because 
I was out there literally an eternity of time, as it were. And yet when I came back to my body, it had been less than a millisecond, as it were. You know, the time is so different in that space. So um, I was in shock. I literally could not feel. And none of us, I think, who were on that touring coach were able to feel because it's not the kind of thing you start off your school day with in the course of events. Mm -hmm. So one of the, uh, the joys I've had in visiting theologic, theorizing with Brayden and Liz is perspectives. Uh, perspectives of uh, nearly a generation um, behind me. Uh, and that's what this, this conversation includes three generations. Um, uh, Boomer, Jack, and, and Millennial, right? Uh, so um, some of the joys that I've had in, in those conversations are pers- the perspectives um, that are so different in how um, we then share our stories because uh, ultimately I'm a storyteller. I love capturing and sharing stories. And one of the frustrations I have uh, is how hard it is to get some people to share their stories, especially about God, uh, especially about the spiritual realm or mystery. Isn't that interesting? I've experienced the same thing. Well, so Braden offered me an insight yesterday, the day before, uh, in that he believes it's very much generational. Very, very generational. So would you would you take that take that ball and run with it, Braden? Um, so in in my life, I've grown up in my adult life with social media as an outlet for me. So anytime that I felt like I had something to say, whether it was just a, a quip about how I was feeling or whatever it might be that particular or some bigger thought on society, I could type it and send it out and anybody could see it and respond to it however they were going to respond. My grandparents didn't have that option. A lot of times their church experience was more of a sit down and we'll tell you how to think and what to believe and how to live. Um, And so whenever there is an event that happens in a person's life outside of that framework that they've been handed. It's so easy to go. Everybody's going to think I'm crazy because this doesn't fit in, in what we, in what we have language to talk about. Um, And so I think there's, there is this shift that's starting to happen that like Liz and I can talk freely and openly about multiple experiences that we've had over the last couple of months of, physical sensations or meditative trance-like things that have happened. Mm-hmm. And some of that is we're just open to talk about it. We've got like, we've got people around us who have helped us to come up with language to put to these experiences that really, when it comes right down to it, we don't have words that can give it the oomph that it needs. Um, but that generational difference is that I've, I've grown up, with the ability to share whenever I want to share. And so if I have something way off the wall, I can share it immediately and get the response that I get. And I'm used to people saying, 
yeah, that's right. Cool. Awesome. And I'm also used to, you're nuts. You're crazy. You're wrong. So just that experience level of that feedback, whenever I have an experience that somebody else maybe hasn't had is a completely different experience than generations before me. I've heard the same thing from young people and to give a perspective of an older generation and from a person who actually worked with even older generations, a lot of people have told me I'm evil. Other people have told me that I'm under demonic influence. And I worked in a nursing home where one woman who experienced visionary experiences and audible experiences would just break down and cry because in her church she was taught well that's witchcraft or it's evil or it's demonic and one of the reasons i wrote chapter 14 in the book okay so for my generation me just putting that chapter out and that is exposing myself in a way that i very rarely do eric and i talk because we talk about everything but most people don't have the capacity to hear. And part of it is a language thing. It's a very hard thing to find the words since we don't have language in English to express some of what is experienced. Mm -hmm. And there was one story that was coincident with the story about the little boy who hit his head on the pavement at school. And in that story, one of my other students found a little goldfinch that had flown into the brick building and it was lying on the ground. And he said, oh, look, there's a goldfinch down there. And it was a little male goldfinch. And this may be the first time I'm actually telling this story. I'm not sure. I picked up the little bird and Harold had taught me a way to, let's say, channel healing energy and because I can see I could tell that when the bird hit the building the spinal cord popped out of his spinal column in two places what I did was just push his little spinal column back in and the little bird woke up if you will and we washed it for a little while we gave him some water I think we gave him like maybe crumbs of bread because it was lunch and all the kids wanted to see what was going on and we had him in a little box and you know then the teacher felt that you know the class was being too distracted by this and we let it go and it flew away but how do you explain that story to people who don't have the concept of being able to let's say push a little bird's spine back in place with energy yeah so I, I'm so grateful for the internet. I'm grateful for the openness of the younger generation and the receptivity. And even if, I don't care if people tell me that I'm crazy, that's great because you know what? There's still discussion happening. And this is what I talk about all the time. You know, everybody kind of just shuts up. You know, my grandma told me a story. I don't even know what prompted her to tell me the story. And Jesus talked to her once and warned her not to use thus and such a bottle of water for what something she was making. She got it was poisonous. And she never forgot that event, ever. But I'm also sure she never talked about it to people because 
People back then thought, you're crazy. The last woman in chapter 14 was way more gifted than I am. She was called the witch as a child. Um, and she grew up, she was born in the 20s, so she grew up during the Depression eras. And she could do things, and she was predicting things like this. They just called her a witch. Um, it's unfortunately where modern Christianity has come from. Yeah. 14 is a beautiful chapter. So I'm hoping that uh, uh, whoever is listening to this will purchase this book rapidly <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and enjoy, enjoy the mystery of the journey. Uh, I, I'm going to share one of the stories uh, from chapter 14. And, and John writes these chapters um, as parables. Uh, it's not... Uh, it's not first person. Uh, every you know, every story is a little different. Um, uh, it's not always first person. Uh, that uh, you don't necessarily always know who is speaking. It's it's an it's a way of inviting the reader into a story and asking them to do their own work. Uh, we talked about when we began. We talked about the challenge of doing our work. Uh, well, I, I see these stories as an invitation for people to do their inner work. Um, and, and part of that is that inner work is coming to realize that just because it's mystery and we can't explain it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Uh, so here is, here is this story. Another time, when you were an adult, we worked together in the kitchen at a nursing home. I did dishwater duty, dishwasher duty that day. When I was finished, I returned to the kitchen to see what I might do to help you. There you were with your hand wrapped up with ice. What happened, I asked. You responded that you were carrying a pot of boiling oil, but your hand became weak and the pot began to fall. In the process, you poured the oil directly onto your other hand. Fran told you to ice it, but this injury was far worse than mere icing. I never outed myself to you before, but this time I had to expose myself for your sake. Let me see if the burn, if I may. You offered your hand. I could see the severity of the damage and I could feel the intensity of the pain. I said, this is going to hurt. And you consented. I opened myself so that the healing energy of God might come in and remove the burn. It was extremely bad. In the process, I felt the boiling oil and you winced from the re-experience of the pain. It took a few minutes, but the damaged tissue was restored. Only a tiny spot of pink skin remained. Is that better? Smiling, you responded. I always knew you were kind of special. You know, uh, that particular woman, uh, yeah, let, me, let me go back a step because one of the things I say early on, because I've been exposed to some particular theologies which teach that the age of miracles is over. And since I did not grow up with that concept in my mind, I didn't have this negative perception about the potential. Mm -hmm. And I feel that a lot of the things I have experienced are because in my mind, I don't have an obstacle to it actually unfolding, as it were. Well, that particular individual had a similar kind of mindset. There wasn't perhaps a seeking, as it were, but there was no resistance. And it's as with animals, you know, when there's the story about that squirrel, animals are completely receptive 
to God's healing. That squirrel, when that squirrel's paw was run over by that car, he waited for me on the side. I was talking to him just as I'm talking to you. He waited for me and he watched me and he looked at me and then he offered up the paw. He didn't have a mental construct that says, oh, this is impossible. Right. And they, the same with that woman. She eventually, she has since passed over and she eventually experienced her own ability to accomplish the same. She experienced levitation. She experienced things that, you know, we're like, whoa, because she was also a very gifted person. It was, uh, it was actually really fun for her and I to get together. In fact, she lived hundreds of miles away and she said, well, I'm gonna show you a painting I just bought in my mind. And I could actually see elements of the painting because that was our connection. Um, that may not be particularly desirable on all occasions because one can pick up absolutely everything that's in the environment, but it is really nice to have someone with whom you can be close and share at that level. Mm -hmm. Another part of the book that was has been standing out to me over the last several months as I've been wrestling with it um, is actually in chapter 13. So I was able to find it really easily. Um, but you talk about, uh, it says, once again, there, there I was in my bed, feverish, trembling, and as good as dead. Suddenly there arose a warm, roaring flood of energy from below. I knew that I would soon be propelled from my body. So I faced east, assumed the correct posture for meditation and stilled my mind. That paragraph has been with me for a while. Um, you said that that gal was, she's open to, there was an openness of her to receive that gift from you or to, see, to receive that healing through you. Um, and I think that a lot of us, for, for so many of us, it is that fact that we do experience God if we are open and looking. And, and, and in that example, you, you were aware enough and in tune enough with your body and the, and the energies around you that you were like, this is coming. And I'm not surprised. I know what to do. Here's how I get ready for it. And I, I just, I really, that has stuck with me. So, you know, two things right away. One of the things I enjoy about the feedback from people who've read the book is I get perspectives on things that are different from mine. And I really value how interesting that is. It makes the material fresh for me, but it also creates dialogue between us. And I appreciate that. And one of the reasons I put that story in there is specifically because there are people who are going to experience that. And if they don't have some kind of an intellectual construct, they're going to be like I was out in the middle of that field in Scotland. It's like, okay, just shock, you know, just in shock. Didn't Where do I put this? Experience. I didn't talk about that experience for years. In fact, family members texted me when... I uh, posted the story on Facebook. I didn't know that. And it's like, no, you didn't. Cause I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'll out myself at, on this point that I'm, 
I'm still very new to more of the opened up to the deeper spiritual energies that are already in me. I'm just realizing that those are things that are truly and honestly deep within every bit of me. Um, and so like your, I just, I'm going to take the moment and say your book coming into my life when it did couldn't have been better timed. And I would, and it's not timing. It's not you. It's, it's things just came together and it's awesome to watch it and be a part of it. And I want to dovetail on that because there's so it's there's so many layers of potential response to this. First one is this information was never shared with people in the past. Uh, the rabbis would not share it um, openly and publicly. And in fact, in the Talmud, it says that you can only talk about these things one person to one person, and then only in a whisper. And it is because it goes into an area that is frightening to most people and potentially a trap to other people because they have different motivations. And I can hear in your heart that you are just acknowledging that it is a part of who you are. I feel that the book came out now. I feel that it is completely consistent with God's timing for your generation and generations to come because we are being changed. The human race is being changed. And Eric and I have talked about this and I've talked about it with other people. I give a lot of people who read chapter uh, 27 and 28. It's like, I don't get the math, man. It's like, you know what? Just read the word. Do not process the words, just read the words. And in the process of writing the book, I learned so much, not only about what I had experienced, because some of those things, I don't even know what the metaphors mean even now. But as I was writing it, I was taught what some of them meant. But I also got an appreciation on Revelation, and that is, it is evolving us. It is preparing us to receive God's presence. I was in a messianic study group for a while and the leader of the group said something that really kind of took me aback because he said you know you can't experience the presence of God in its fullness and I was like wait a minute but what he was saying was in these physical bodies in the world as it is not God's presence would annihilate us and God, in his mercy, has allowed us not to be annihilated so that we can kind of crawl toward him. But I have a feeling that there's going to be um, a quickening happening, in, not just for individuals, but for entire populations. Well, I, I completely agree with you on that point. Um, and, and kind of where I'm coming to that conclusion is from the idea that Technology and communication and everything has exploded so much over the last 20 years through the course of my lifetime. I didn't grow up with Google. If I want to know something now, I type it into a search engine and it's the an answer is there. It may not always be the correct answer or I have to do more digging or whatever, but an answer is there. And 
in our scientific ways of thinking. And we know a lot about how the physical world works. We know exponentially more about how the physical world works than our ancestors did. And so I think part of where this opening up is coming from, where this awakening is coming from, is that there are more and more people in our society that don't have to spend the time focused on gathering, hunting, figuring out the world. And so we are able to take more time and be intentional with that time to, to explore the spiritual universe, as it were. You don't think they were exploring their spiritual universe when they were out there in the creation of God? I think they may have been distracted. I think yeah. they were exploring, but there were a lot of other things going on. Well, I'd like to follow up what Liz just said by sharing my screen here. Um, I'm going to uh, show a journey of life. Okay, so what we're looking at here is... Coming out of spiral dynamics, uh, the altitudes of spiritual development and really it's societal development. And all people in all societies begin at the archaic stage. Um, this is the dawning self-awareness. This is a child and infant um, uh, becoming aware of its unique identity apart from its mother. Uh, but this is also the same thing as human society, which is pure survival instinct, pure us versus them. Uh, over time, 50,000 years ago, this came online 50,000 years ago, um, the, uh, the magical stage in which everything is enchanted, values and rituals and deep community, uh, individuals are always subordinate to the group. Survival, this is what life was like for most Israelites at the time of Jesus. Uh, they lived in tiny, tiny communities, 100 people or less. Everybody was a family member. Uh, we know from archaeology that all of those families had idols in their homes, nature idols. Everything was, uh, all aspects of life were spiritual. Uh, so what I, what I wanted to offer, and I I sensed this was where Liz was going, is that uh, counter in a way to what part of what Braden said is we've, as we've grown, as we've matured, as we've become more aware of scientific perspectives, we've lost some of the spiritual perspective. We lost some of the connection to the divine that's everywhere uh, because those magical things aren't logical. Uh, and I think a lot of this happened uh, in the Industrial Revolution um, and the French Revolution. Uh, we, uh, uh, we had this awakening of identity, the self, which is uh, tribal red, egocentric, vigilant and aggressive, impulsive and ruthless. Uh, I am, uh, I think, therefore I am. It's all about me. It's a self-centered perspective. And the reason this is called spiral dynamics is because it isn't linear. We're not stepping up a ladder. We're spiraling back to a place of inclusivity 
And eventually, the most mature, the most spiritually mature people, a very tiny percentage of people realize oneness, oneness with everything. Uh, this is Celtic Christianity. Um, Philip Newell, excellent author, uh, great place to start if you want to explore Celtic Christianity. Uh, but uh, earth-centered Christianity, earth-centered realization that spirit uh, is in everything, uh, in everything is imbued with spirit, uh, and that's not scary. Uh, it's just natural. Um, so I wanted to share that because that's part of the journey conversation that we began with. The 42-stage journey is not linear. And the arrival at the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not a place. It's not heaven. It's a relationship. And once we enter into that relationship, um, we're there. It's heaven all the way to heaven. Uh, entering into a, an intimate relationship with God is what Thomas Keating was trying to teach all of his followers. It begins with that first step, that awakening. Uh, and then what we are talking about uh, in this conversation and in all subsequent con con conversations is uh, points on the path, where we set up our tent, uh, what we experience at the places where we camp, uh, where we are in this journey and, and who, what we've experienced in the wilderness and how God is shaping us through those, those camping experiences. And uh, I think in, in tying that back to John's book, there's a lot of camping going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> John's in the wilderness, yeah. mountains a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I have to tell you, one of the things that gives me the greatest joy is people who have read through the book, have gone back to the beginning and read through it again, because as the publisher Kira said, this is a very complex book. There are layers upon layers upon layers of meaning. And I appreciate the fact that there are people who actually want to dig deeper. That, that gives me great hope for the utility of the book in our world, which is after all, why it was written. Otherwise, why bother? <laughs> I wanna, I wanna insert something there um, because this is uh, I don't know John if you did this intentionally but this is what I'm sensing is one of uh, peeling back some of the layers a method to your madness per se page four um, this book of stories is not a detailed description or interpretation of the 42 stage journey of self-cultivation such things have been around at least 20 centuries and are readily available online. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you don't say, go search, <laughs> but yeah. it's there, right? You know, uh, and, and I did not want to do that because people then put their stuff onto the 42 stage journey and their interpretations. And I did not want to interpret that. You know, Origen did that and he got kicked out. I mean, let's face it. Body, they're accepting it back in, but uh, it doesn't work when it's approached that way, I feel. I want to throw out stories there. And what was more important to me is the summation 
at the end of the book in what it was that I learned through the process. We all learn these things. I remember meeting a young teenage girl and she was trying to make up her mind. Should I go to college? Should I be a career woman? Should I have children and should I be a mother? And I looked at her and I said, Angel, you're going to learn the same things. Choose the path that makes you the most happy because you will get the same, you will arrive at the same place, regardless of your path. We're all on a journey. We don't have to acknowledge it if we don't want to, but we are on a journey. And some of us actually pay attention and learn from our mistakes. Uh, hopefully everyone will begin to do that increasingly. So taking it back to the video game metaphor that Braden brings up, um, the, the reason that the video games, the story-based video games, you have all of the different potential paths you can take, but you arrive at the same place, basically. Uh, you just have different experiences along the way. But it's because the video game producers are mirror, mirroring life. You know, and they're, it, brilliant. they're brilliant. <laughs> they are. There's, there are so many, especially over the last probably five to 10 years, there have been a lot of um, what's known as open world games, where basically you are just a character running around through different villages or different things like that, different places with, obviously those little spots are pre-programmed to do certain things or whatever, but you have the freedom to run around and go and see and be wherever you want to be for as long as you want to be there. Which when, when you say that, that, that they're creative and they're, they're kind of, you're a hundred percent right. They're playing God. They're, they're saying, here's an experience that I'd like people to just be able to go and sit in for as long as they'd like to. And I've done it several times. I know my younger brothers also do it, but you can get sucked in for 12 hours at a time and not even hardly blink. Now, just imagine if, you know, if we could have that same, let ourselves get sucked into the imagination of the creator of the universe without holding a video game controller in our hands. Some we just walk do. out our front door. Some of us do. Yeah. Uh, a, so a way that I've heard that described is, and John, I think you are a, a, a really good example of this, is that some people have really, really sensitive antennas. Some people don't have a sensitive antenna at all. And they're, you know, we sit on the couch on Saturday afternoons and watch football. Well, um, that's why I brought up earlier in the discussion, we all experience God, but a lot of us don't know we're actually experiencing God. You know, I don't know anybody who hasn't held a baby and just instantly melted. Well, that's because there's a lot of God happening right there. Birth is a, I mean, if you've attended a birth, <laughs> okay, a lot of God. Or if you've gone to a funeral, I go to funerals and you know the doorway between the worlds is wide open for several days and because i am part indian and because i've learned certain things the indians deal with that phenomenon in a specific way because it is real and i remember one of my dearest friends father died and she asked if i would come with her to the funeral 
And I was there and there's this door wide open and I'm looking onto the other side and he comes over and he says, I didn't know you could do that. And I said, yeah, I can. That's how wide open that place is. And people don't know when they go to a funeral that they're actually experiencing the presence of God. I was at a funeral recently that one of the, the mother of one of my dearest friends and it was during COVID, so we were all, you know, spaced and wearing masks. And, Still and, is during COVID, by the way, <laughs> for, those, for those listening. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, what happened was I sat down, and the Holy Spirit just filled me up. And it wasn't because of anything I did. I just interpreted it as this was a very, very holy woman, because I have never experienced anything like what I experienced. And it was a full Catholic service. So it was well over an hour. And there I was, I could barely remain conscious because the Holy Spirit energy was on me so much. And I only just got to share that with my friend the other day. And I said, again, the only way I can interpret that is this woman was so holy. She actually opened that up for all the people in the room who may or may not have experienced it. At this point, I'd like to talk a little bit about what we're doing here uh, with this podcast. This is the first of what will hopefully be many of a podcast called uh, A Questioning Faith. And the A in that is very important. We're not questioning faith, but we're talking about what it means to have a faith that is open to questions and open to mystery and open to the process of the 42 stage journey, uh, the divine journey from uh, first awakening to the presence of God, to the place where uh, the relationship is of oneness. As this is the journey that the apostle Paul had and we see it beautifully in uh, in Galatians and 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about being lifted up to the seventh heaven, to places where he saw things it's impossible to put into words. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, he defines where we're going. What does it mean to arrive at the 42nd encampment? Uh, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me, which is what John was talking about before. I, my, God's using my hands. My feet are the very feet of God, oneness, becoming one. Uh, and we'll talk about this in the future. John and I have talked about this uh, repeatedly over the years, but that's that's terrifying for people in earlier stages of relationship because we worry about losing our identity. Um, but uh, I don't want to get too deep into that today, but there's, there is that, 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 I, that idea that I become one with God, that I truly, God, well, Awake, we become aware of the fact that we are one with God. We already are. It's just we're not aware of it yet. Um, but it's terrifying for a lot of people because it goes against everything they've been told. And there's in America, we're taught we have to build our own identities. Oh my God, what if I lose my identity? Uh, so we are in this in this process, this questioning faith. And we're going to be asking lots of questions and exploring. Um, potential answers, but um, there are a lot of things when it comes to faith that we just can't explain. Um, and 
What I'd like to offer too is something that John and I have talked about. Many people are frustrated that they, I just need to know that God is real. I just I want to know that God is real. And they spend no time at all trying to develop a relationship with God. Um, so if the kingdom of God is not a place, but a relationship, if the realm of God is not a place, but a relationship, well, how much time are we putting into that relationship? When we have 40 hour work weeks and we come home and uh, we got, and, you know, ages and stages in life, there's, there's, and that's why this journey is 42 stages long. Uh, because there are times in our lives when we just don't have much margin. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't be talking to God continuously throughout the day, learning how to pray without ceasing, learning how to have conversations with God. And John has gifts that very few people have. Um, but I have gifts also that very few people have. And Liz, you do too. And Braden, just because John has, he calls it the gift of sight. Uh, I probably never will have, I mean, that's a gift. I can't develop that. I can't make that happen, but I can listen and, oh, does God speak to me when I'm trying to craft a sermon or when I'm trying to, I've been coaching and mentoring people and I've had questions come into my mind that I thought, no, I can't ask that. And then I ask it and a whole new realm of conversation opens up and massive, I've watched massive transformation happen because I had the courage to ask the question that I sensed God asking me to ask. Um, that's it. I'll take that gift. Um, but, it, but, but it's also something that I've cultivated and I've developed and I've spent a lot of time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours coaching people. John has spent hundreds. Okay, there's a book called The Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And in it, Gladwell does interviews with people that are at the top of their game. The Beatles, um, Michael Jordan, uh, a whole wide variety of people that um, uh, in the early 90s when it came out were household names. Uh, and all of them, 10,000 hours of practice before they ever began to feel like they were competent. The Beatles spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours gigging in Germany before they ever released an album. Uh, overnight success? No, not so much. Five years in Germany? 10,000 hours of playing dive bars. <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, so I don't know how many, I was going to do the math, John. I, I was thinking about this in the car the other day. I'll do the math on how many, <laughs> how many hundred thousand hours you must have spent. <laughs> no, I really appreciate what you're saying on a lot of different levels, but I want the listeners to know when I started, I wasn't aware of any of my gifts and I tried meditating and if I, it took me months before I experienced like about a half second of quiet. And it was like, there's no way I'm ever gonna get anywhere on this, but I continued because I was shown it really is the only game in town, at least for me. And uh, you know, one of the things that came to my mind while you were talking about investing in that relationship and people's frustration over, let's say, um, lack of response. When Jesus promises 
knock and it will be opened. That is, that comes from the Lord's mouth, okay? That is gold. You can take it to the bank. You just keep on knocking because you will get a response. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's it's one of those things, the, the way that I've phrased it for myself and, and heard it phrased other times is that what you look for, you will find. If you're looking for happiness, you will see happiness. If you're looking for sadness, you will see sadness. If you're looking for the divine, it's all over. You will see it. You will experience it if you are looking and open. There's a, a similar phrase that I've found to be very true, and especially speaking, oh, I, shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't make judgments. Speaking to anybody, regardless of age. Who we surround ourselves is often the kind of people we will become. You know, where we spend our time, who we surround ourselves with, those are classic indicate. Those are the indications of uh, of, of where we're going and and uh, where we're headed on our path. There's. Uh, I think my favorite chapter um, so far is chapter four. So I want to read a little bit of it. And not so much because of the story, but because of the way it's written. Mm-hmm. Um, the gospel of Mark is written in a similar way. The gospel of Mark ends in a similar way that you end this chapter, John. Um, and if I translate the Greek properly, uh, and I could be wrong, um, but uh, probably, <laughs> probably wrong. I'm not a Greek <laughs> scholar, but I'm good enough to, to get us the, close. Uh, the, the end of the Gospel of Mark, and Gospel of Mark is a gospel filled with irony. It's a literary masterpiece. It is written by someone with an unbelievable gift of narrative writing. Um, and Mark uses a tremendous amount of tools, hyperbole, uh, over-exaggeration, uh, irony out the wazoo. And he ends it with this incredible piece of irony. Uh, all throughout the gospel, we get the messianic secret. Jesus does something. He tells people that he heals, be silent. Don't tell anybody. He tells the demons to be silent. Don't, he doesn't let anybody name him. Um, and now at the end of the gospel, the women that are at the tomb see an angel and the angel tells them, go tell the disciples what you've seen. And the women leave and they say nothing. They say nothing. Um, and Mark tells us they say nothing um, because they were afraid. Well, you can also translate that and say the women left the tomb saying nothing. They were afraid for dot, 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 dot. Mm -hmm. He leaves the sentence wide open. Mm -hmm. What am I supposed to do with that? It's kind of like the end of Jonah in which God says to Jonah, you're so angry that you wanna die because I didn't kill the Ninevites? Yes, I'm so angry I could die. Well, shouldn't I be concerned about 100,000 people who don't even know their left hand from their right and all their animals? 
dot, 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 dot. <laughs> and I, before you go into the chapter, can I interject something? Yeah, please. You know, Kira and I talked a lot. We actually met for six months before the decision to go ahead with the project was made. And we talked a lot about the actual crafting of the structure of the book, not just chapter by chapter, but how to write each chapter. And what we're talking about today is really about backstory. And there is so much depth. The book is a veneer of my life. And I said to her, there's what I'm looking forward to actually, and this is what I've been doing on the Facebook, is I'm giving backstory because there is so much that I did not say. And it's like what, what John says, you know, if every story of Jesus were told, the world would not be able to contain them. Mm. There is so much that cannot be said, but what you're picking up on is, it sometimes is what's really important. And that's when Braden brought up the oral um, Torah earlier, that people don't understand that there was a dialogue behind the scenes all the time. I mean, when you read the, um, let's say you're going through Leviticus, okay? Even though it's like a mind bake just to get through the chapter, there's so much that was not written in there because it is so deep. The subject matter is so deep. That's why, uh, you know, I like to read the rabbi's interpretations of it because we actually have an understanding now that there was a discussion going on and it was ongoing and it was perpetuated throughout to the millennia. The Talmud is how many volumes, John? Oh, goodness Lord. It's like $10,000 worth. It's $10,000 worth, right? If you want to buy the Talmud, it's like $10,000. So the Talmud is part of that oral conversation, part of that, that argument. It's, the, it's the history of the rabbis arguing their perspectives on what Torah says. Uh, and then you get the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition that had been written down. Uh, so there's this whole, like John said, the, the Torah, the first five chapters of the Bible, is this tiny little veneer on the Jewish traditional conversation, right? And to tie this back to talking about why we are naming this a questioning faith. A lot of the conversation between rabbis wasn't statements. It was questions. When they were having these discussions, it wasn't, this is the way it is. It was, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And offering, offering some insights, but still typically ending with questions. And we can see that from the way that Jesus talks to uh, the, the scribes and Pharisees and, and his disciples even in in the, the Gospels, God, Jesus a lot of times doesn't say, this is how it is. Jesus will say, what do you think? And so just opening up that discussion and, and being willing to ask questions of each other, of ourselves and, and everything else, and just see where it takes us. You know, that is a particular learning technique used in Judaism to answer a question with a question because it pushes the envelope and you keep getting higher and higher and higher and higher. And yeah, it gets abstract. But what you're doing is fleshing out all of the little, it's in the game, okay, in the video games. It's all of the different little pathways. They go down every single little different pathway because they want to know 
all of the game. They don't want to know, okay, there's three words, this rule. That's what you do. They want to go the entire game every time. Okay, we're coming up on the time when we need to close. So I'm going to close us with chapter four. And we're going to experience it just as John wrote it. So I'm not going to read it and then have any discussion. I'm going to let the words just hang. Uh, so John, uh, <laughs> what I love about John, is <laughs> he doesn't even have a copy of his own book in his house. <laughs> so, uh, so this is I Am Love, uh, four residences, 8,000 miles, and three years later, I found myself homeless. Is there anything you want to say to set up the story? You know, uh, I'm going to let you read it because I love listening to you read. So, story speak for All right, here we go. Four residences, 8,000 miles, and three years later, I found myself homeless, alone, dejected, sick, depressed, penniless, unskilled, inexperienced, without guidance, without direction, without goals, not knowing the purpose of life, having no particular reason to live and no desires strong enough to motivate me. All right, so. For yeah, anybody- can we stop on that one? Holy <laughs> <laughs> just, just one statement is all I'm gonna make. I'm trying to reach out to those people who feel disenfranchised, those people who feel marginalized, those people who feel disconnected from let's say mainstream culture because it does not work for some of us. And I want to let people know this is where I was. And I want people to who identify with that to say, I'm going to pay attention to this because this is where he was. Absolutely. Hope. Uh, there I was in the rabbit warren called my friend's apartment. It was scarcely more than a bedroom. The communal bathroom was outside. A hot plate served as his kitchen. My friend was in Mexico with his friend, so he allowed me to make use of this place while he was gone. I was trying to get my head together, having been turned away by the head of the department on the grounds that I couldn't navigate politics. And not having a backup plan, I found myself uh, with a great big question mark staring at me in the face. When the opportunity had arisen to hitch a ride with a friend on his way to Berkeley, I jumped on it. He had a half 65, half 66 sea blue Volkswagen bug that struggled to hit 65 miles an hour going downhill. It was a real adventure getting up the grade between Reno and Tucky and Truckee. Luckily, a couple of 18 wheelers were with us all the way. We'd pass them going uphill and they'd pass us going down. It was an elegant pas de trois on wheels. Their presence was a comfort as well as a protection from the more aggressive drivers. I was relieved when we began the long descent into Sacramento. That was in August, 1981. It took only four short months for my life to fall apart completely. I'd found a job almost immediately doing archeological excavations and surveys. It was a great way to see the state get fresh air and exercise, but occurring as it did during the recession, our customers from big corporations to small property owners couldn't afford to pay their contracts. Some even bartered. So there I was in the rabbit warren, contemplating the flow of events that had led up to that point in time. 
in that very instant, the purest blue light filled my body and spoke, I am love. In that instant, I comprehended the mechanics of the universe. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to rate, review, follow, and like us from wherever you might be listening. On our next episode, we continue the journey with John as we discuss the question, how do you know that you know God? And the experiences we've had that have led us through belief into knowing.